Kindly turn to the Word of God in Romans 8. We're going to study only one verse today. But I would like us to read verse 1 all the way to verse 15. Romans 8, 1 to 15. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by setting his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirements of law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, but it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, even the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, our sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Our Father and our God, we desire to hear your voice today. And not just to hear, but we desire that our minds will be transformed and be renewed and be conformed to the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us not just to hear, but to understand. And help us not just to understand, but to believe and to commit to live accordingly by your Spirit 
please give us understanding. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Someone told me last Sunday to explain further on what are indicatives and imperatives which I used. You will see from my preaching that I never use such words except when I explain them. So if you just keep listening, you will understand the meaning of such words because I will reckon that we have children here who need to understand what I'm talking about. So it's my preaching method to use such simple terms as would be understood by your children. So if you listen keenly, you will find that I will define every term that I use. So all you need to be is to listen keenly. Now that means that I still need to explain those two words. An indicative can be considered to be a simple statement of fact. It can denote a particular quality or representation. We see indicatives in scripture that help, help us to understand two things. What we are and what we have. So indicatives tell us what we are or what we have. So it's just saying that's what you are or that's what you have in Christ. Indicatives lay no demands upon us. They simply tell us what God has done for us and what he has made us to be and what he has given us so that he, tell, he tells us what we have. It doesn't tell us what to do. Those are indicatives. They indicate. The signboards tell us, there is a signboard by our gate. It says, Trinity, welcome to Trinity Baptist Church. Okay? That's an indicative statement. It's telling us, this is where it is. This is its identity. This is the identity of the people who gather here. Imperatives, on the other hand, are statements of commands. They sound like, be this or do this. They could also be, don't be this and don't do that. Now, in scripture, indicatives are the power behind the imperatives. For example, you come to the book of Romans. Much of Romans 1 through, 12, uh, through 11 are statements of indicatives. They are telling us what you have been made to be by the grace of God. You, for example, have been justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. And we come to chapter 12 through 16, and it tells you, it tells us what we are to 
do or how we are to live or how we are to uh to not to be in light of the indicatives you can very naturally divide romans into romans 1 to 11 and romans 12 to 16 and so you're not going to have really strong commands now it's all sometimes mixed up uh, between romans 1 to 11 but mostly and generally the romans 1 to 11 is indicatives and then you come to chapter 12 and it says therefore because of all that you've done you've heard you are and this is what the lord expects you to behave ephesians is also like that ephesians 1 to 3 is all indicatives, and then Ephesians 4 to 6, generally speaking, is mostly imperatives. Let me give you a number of examples then from Romans. Because, you, uh, because we are justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, what is that? Indicative or imperative? Thank you. We have peace with God and are to please Him imperative okay because we are indwelt by the spirit indicative modify the deeds of the flesh imperative we are sons of god and so hairs of god and fellow hairs with christ what's that provided we suffer with him that's an imperative. You're not going to enjoy fully being son of God and so heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if you're not willing to suffer now in this life because that's the way it is. So last Sunday we had that we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if we live according to the flesh, we will die. That's just a condition. That's our state. Or that's our status. You don't need to do anything about that, really, other than understand your position. We heard that we are led by the Spirit. What do we need to do to be led by the Spirit? Yes? Buy him a cup of coffee at Java, right? Now, you're enabled by the Spirit to put to death, to, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We heard that we are sons of God. What do we do? We need to be, or I mean, to do to be sons of God. And you remember me telling you that. To be led by the Spirit means that you are a son of God. Which means if you're a son of God, you will be led by the Spirit. So being led by the Spirit is not even that the Lord is saying, avail yourself to be led by the Spirit. No. It's not avail yourself or, you know, come to church to be led by the Spirit or something like that. No. This is all 
spirit, spirit, the Spirit's own initiative. Today, then, we shall hear another indicative. And uh, today we, we are told two things. What you did not receive and what you have received to make you what you are. And so I'm calling this message, this is the Christian DNA. If this is not true of you, Stop telling us that you're a Christian and become one. This is, the, this is it. You know, uh, with, with uh, the lives that we live in, the times that we live in, uh, some woman decides that you are the father of her daughter. And you have no way of saying no except by going to a lab. Right? And you've had many politicians having to go to the lab. Now, of course, the, the fact that, you know, it's coming upon them, uh, we say that there is no smoke without, there's no smoke without fire. So I don't think anyone will just turn up and say, you're, his, uh, you're the father of their children without any, any smoke. But anyway, if you have to go to the lab to prove it, then that's what needs to happen. But why do people go to the lab? For the DNA test. Because worms can do what? Who knows whether worms are true or not? Let's find out from the lab. Let's, let's check and see whether this is indeed true or not. So what really is a Christian DNA? Yes, what's a Christian DNA? How do you for sure know that you are a Christian? And God will not tell you on that last day, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity, depart from me. In other words, your DNA is incompatible with the Heavenly Father's DNA. You know, that's why you'll be told that. Or that's why anyone would be told that. If the DNA don't match up, what do you think will happen? We'll be rejected. So we better then find out what really is a Christian DNA, because there is, there is a Father, God, He is the Heavenly Father. On what basis will the Father say, this is my Son? And you will not be rejected on that last day. Well, people will come and say, you know, Lord, I, I was a member. I was a member of a Trinity Baptist Church in Dunham, Nairobi. Does that suffice? Yes? Well, Lord, you know, I carried my Bible and read it every day. Look at how, you know, how tattered it is. I've been using it. 
Will that suffice? Well, Lord, you know that I was baptized. I was baptized by a man of God. Will that suffice? Well, Lord, you, you know I was a church leader. I was. I was a church officer. Yes? Will that do? No. So what will do then? Is it that God is insatiable? What will do? So we need to ask this. This is a serious question. What makes you call God Father when you pray? And you say, oh, Father Lord, oh, Father Lord. What makes you think that God is your Father? You call God Father? On what basis is the question? Verse 14 says that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's what they are. That's their position. That's what they are. So we are sons of God if we are led by the Spirit of God. But if you're not led by the Spirit of God, then you're sons. It doesn't matter how regular you come to church. It doesn't matter how early you come to church. It doesn't matter what you do with your Bible. It doesn't matter whether you are baptized or not. It doesn't matter whether you are a church officer or not. If you're not led by the Spirit, and to be led of the Spirit leans to something else, which is in this verse. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. You did not receive the spirit of bondage. To fall back to fear. So this verse tells us what we did not receive. And it tells us what we received. This is the most critical verse of giving us our identity, our DNA, if you will. And what makes a believer a Christian is dealt with then in this chapter. First of all, you did not receive the spirit of slavery. That's what you did not receive. You did not receive the spirit of bondage. You're not enslaved in the condition of being a Christian. Rather, you're free. Believers are at liberty. But all unbelievers, all unbelievers, all non-Christians, young and old, are slaves and they live in fear for they are unable to obey the law of God and yet will have to give an account 
of everything they've done in the body, whether good or evil. This keeps them both in servitude, but also in dread. It keeps them in slavery, and it keeps them in fear. So two things then that we see negatively about our DNA. Number one, no slavery. There's no slavery. To be in slavery meant being owned by a master or a lord. And a master bought you. And that, can, and that brought you into a condition of being under, under his service. Having no personal rights. It is a master who had absolute power to do with a slave whatever he pleased. That's not a good condition. To be a slave is no good. Oh no, you don't want to be a slave. It is true that the Lord himself tells us that we, any, any, any Christian slave is expected by the Lord, the Lord of Lords, that is, to obey and submit to his own master and to do so not just by offering eye service, but as to the Lord. They are to do everything as to the Lord. But this condition is not enviable. You don't want to be a slave. You don't want to be a slave. So thanks be to God for the Bible says very clearly that the spirit we received is not the, uh, the spirit of slavery, of bondage. But some Christians behave as if being a Christian is not very, is very difficult. You know, they don't read the Bible. They don't pray to God. They barely go to church. I mean, if you walk right, right now in, in the hesitant around us, you'll find people still sleeping or reading their newspapers and, or watching TV on their couches. And they will say that they are Christians. They have a testimony, they say. When their children look at them, they would not think that they are delighted in their condition. So clearly then, if you find someone who is in that kind of a condition, it could be your parent. Would you be, would you be quick to say that they are Christians? There's no Christianity there. Yes, they may set their tithes to the church. And yes, their cards, their, their membership cards may be faithfully filled up. But there's no Christianity like that. That's why we, we insist 
You know, the basis upon which you become a member here at Trinity is that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. We don't want to know how much you give to the Lord. It's between you and him. If he is your Lord, if he is your Savior, you will give generously. You don't need any supervision. You know, I'm not going to come to your home in visitation and ask you, how many times do you pray in a day? I'm not going to do that. It's between you and your Lord. If you truly love him, then you will be in communion with him. You will want to hear what he says in his word, and you want to talk with him. You'll tell him of your needs. But if you have no such desire, why should you believe that you're a Christian? Or another bondage would be sin. If you're in bondage of sin, and you know very well that every day you pet your sin, every day you pamper your sin, every day you gratify the desires of your flesh. You're in bondage of that sin. That's not Christianity. Christianity does not come with any bondage. Christianity sets you free from all those bondages. If you're living in bitterness and resentfulness, it's a bondage. It's not Christian. Christians forgive. So, my dear brethren, the Lord says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take upon me my yoke. It is easy. It is light. So if you're bowed in any form of bondage, whether trapped in some besetting sin or some other sin, and you've come comfortable in that condition, then I'm telling you, you will be guilty. Your conscience will not be right. Even if you're not a Christian, your conscience, God has put in us a thermostat, a spiritual thermostat, so that when you sin against God, your conscience will prick you, either to accuse you or to excuse you. And so if you live in that kind of guilt, then you're in bondage. And your conscience tells you that this is bondage. When will, I, when will I be set free from this? It's not Christian. And you see, if there is guilt, if you live in guilty conscience, what do you think is the next consequence? There would be fear. That's where we go next. But for Christians, there is no slavery, there is no fear. Why is the state of slavery not enviable? Slavery. 
You see, being a slave comes with fear. It comes with a guilt conscience. It's a condition that lacks security on the one hand and brings insecurity on the other. And so Paul's reference to the spirit of slavery to fall back to fear most likely points to the law and law-keeping. It seems some of the Jews among the Roman Christians may have tried either to introduce law-keeping as the basis of, of salvation, as the basis for justification, or they were trying to reinstate that condition, considering the word again in the original, and translated here, fall back. They were angling for a return to law. But law-keeping was a bondage. So then the question is, fear of what? It is clearly not a fear of God. Rather, it is fear of consequences. Fear of failure. It's a fear of judgment. It's a fear of death. It's a fear of eternal judgment, uh, death. It's a fear of the judge of the universe. Who could know if one's good, good work outweighed the bad? See, that's, that's it with the law and good works. The Pharisees multiplied the rules and regulations to guard the law and despise the people for their ignorance of these laws. And... Uh, you see, Peter, Peter in uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 10, when they were discussing that whole situation where some guys from Jerusalem had come and they were saying to the Galatians that they need to keep the law. And there was a council, the Jerusalem council, where Peter stood up and he said this. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. The Lord does not give us the spirit to harass us. It's not a yoke on our neck. The spirit does not come with fear or any bondage. He comes with adoption and we'll consider that shortly. But the law comes with the spirit of bondage. It is the spirit of the law that produces this fear, which is born out of guilty, out of a guilty conscience. And so we read in Hebrews 12, verse 18 to 21, of the Jews' fear. While at Mount Sinai, the writer of Hebrews says, for you have not come to what may be touched and blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them because they could not endure the order that was given. And then it says, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. That's it with the law. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. Imagine even Moses 
before the law would say, I tremble with fear. And yet, he comes to the people, to the Israelites, and they say, Moses, go back. Come on, go back. You'll be the one to hear from God. Tell us what God says. We don't want to be the ones to hear. But even Moses is, is knees and knocking in fear and trembling. That was it with the law. And yet people want to go back. This demonstrates how much fear the law produces. It shows why we cannot go back to that kind of a condition. If Moses, the lawgiver, was so terrified as to tremble with fear, how much more those who received the law? This is why we must never abandon the gospel for the law. The law must drive us to the gospel. The law is good to help us to know God's holy will and character. But the law does not lead anyone to salvation or safety. It is the Spirit. So you see, your guilty conscience accusing you and bringing you into this bondage and enslavement need to be dealt with today. You cannot afford to live here with that spirit of bondage. But then secondly, what have you received? It's a spirit of adoption. The spirit you received was not one of slavery for fear. To the contrary, Paul tells us that we received the spirit of adoption who makes us sons of God. And the word received refers to conversion. Remember uh, John 1.12, but to those who received him, those who believed in his name, he gave them the right, the power, to become children of God, who are born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the word received refers to, conver to, to, to conversion, to regeneration, when the Spirit was dispensed by God in His grace and received by faith by the elect, the Spirit and adoption are conjoined because both are eschatological gifts. Both are gifts that will not be eroded by time. They are gifts that will eventually, in the last day, be still at work in our lives. Now, the spirit of adoption involves two privileges. Number one, we are made sons of God. And number two, we are able to call God our father. The privilege of being a son of a, of a president is a great privilege. The privilege of being a son of a king. Now, you know, King Charles of England was a son of Queen Elizabeth. He was in the royal line. Right now, 
challenges the king. That tells you of the great privilege of being a, a son of a king. But let me ask you, what about the privilege of being a son of God in comparison? It's incomparably greater. When we read that we've been given the, the spirit of adoption, well, some of us can say, that's just theology. Isn't it? Is it just theology? Is it just the Bible? You've been given... I mean, the Bible says here in verse 15, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Is that a small thing? Now, if you don't understand it, you might just dismiss it and say, yeah, yeah, that's a good thing. That's a nice thing. Let me go home. But the privilege being spoken of here should encourage us to know that no one can overturn that plan. You know, the, the son of a king, another more powerful king can come and overturn that government and kill the king and all his lineage. How many times have we seen in history kings killed and all their offspring? How many times? I mean, before Josiah became a king, that's what had happened to his family. Most of these epic movies are based upon that kind of attempt to exterminate the king and his lineage. But let me tell you, when it comes to being a son of God, that cannot be overturned by anyone, by anything. Being a son of God by grace, it most assuredly means that that position, that position cannot be overturned. If you're indeed a son of God, that's what you are. No one can snatch you from the Father's hand. No one can delete your name. No one. out of the register of the book of life. If your name is written by marks of indelible grace on the palm of God, no one can, can grab the heart of God and get out your name. You know, Paul registers names are deleted, right? But this cannot happen with God. God cannot disown you. So then we ask in our catechism, what is adoption? Listen to this. Adoption is an act of God's free grace. It is. 
It's an act of God's free grace. And that is from 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love it is that we should be called ch children of God. And that's what we are. That's what we are. So adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number. We are received into the number of God's children and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So when the saints go marching in, will you be among the number? Yes, on the basis of God's free grace. Your name has been written in the book of life, not because you've been a good boy or a good girl, but because of God's free grace. Because of God's free grace. And I'm telling you, that has ushered you, that has ushered you into the privileges, all the privileges of heaven, all the privileges of paradise, all the privileges that Jesus Christ possesses are yours. Think about that. We are surely God's sons by grace and by grace, and most assuredly so, for it involves God's free grace. And it is the Spirit who bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if you are children of God, then we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Therefore, we should be willing to bear anything, to suffer anything, and, th and then we shall be glorified together with Christ. I mean, the glories of Christ are ours because we've been adopted into his family. And now you can call God not just my father, but Abba, Father. Abba, Father. It's very surprising that Paul embedded an Aramaic word or term, Abba, in the Greek. But in this phrase, Abba, we hear the voice of Jesus pray in Mark 14, verse 36, where he cried, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you in the garden. He taught his disciples to approach God as Abba, Father. So, this is this communicates the close affection and intimacy that existed between the Father and the Son. Yes, there is to be a distant reverence for the, for the Almighty God. But Jesus spoke to God as a toddler would, uh, would first speak to his Father. And we are brought into the same condition. The rabbis, remember, were outraged that Jesus could, should, uh, should take such liberty because he called God his father, therefore making himself equal with God. Think about that. Yet nothing in the Bible is more important than Jesus' revelation that our creator 
the creator of the universe, the almighty God, the sovereign God, is our dear Father in heaven. So through faith in Jesus, his own son, and through receiving the Spirit, the children of Adam become the children of God. By adoption. We are not begotten like Jesus was. And yet, listen to this. I think the profoundest thing of all is that when God adopted us into his family, he also injected his own DNA in us by his spirit. So the spirit of God dwells believers. And if you do not have the spirit of Christ, don't belong to him. And if you have the spirit of God, you are led by him. And if you have the spirit of God, you modify the deeds of the flesh. Do you see that? So what is the Christian DNA? It is the spirit in us, the spirit of God in us. This is the profoundest of all things that God should send his son into the world of sinners and that he should die the sinner's death, and that he should give them his righteousness freely. But you know what? The profoundest of all is that Jesus should send the Spirit to be not with us, but to be in us. To live in us. To bear witness with your own spirit that you are a son of God, a child of God. And to prove it all is that he says, if children, therefore, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Let me talk about provided you suffer with him later. But that's the situation. God has said in his covenant grace, I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy or no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. We've been brought into this covenant of grace. So the church, with both Jews and Gentiles, being under the bloodline of Jesus Christ that redeemed us. And that's why Jesus said those words. When he gave the, Lord's, the cup of the Lord's Supper, what did he say? This cup is the new covenant. He didn't say it's a representation of being in the covenant. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this in remembrance of me. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the blood of Jesus has brought us into the bloodline of God. We have been brought into his family and have been made his ch children. And because we are his children, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And we'll talk about that next time. But this is what the adoption has done. And you notice the adoption into God's family is not going to happen in the future. When is it going to happen? When is the adoption going to happen? What does the text say? You have received. It is not you will receive. You have received the spirit of, the, of adoption as sons. We receive the spirit of adoption and so we are now adopted. It is true. But in the future, we wait for the consummation and completion of this adoption. But right now, we are adopted. It is true that we shall take possession of our inheritance in the future. But right now, we are children of God. Because we are sons of God, being made by the grace of God, outpoured to us by the spirit of adoption, we can now cry. And that's not a cry of agony. This is not a cry of pain. This is a cry of joy. The word cry here is used as an expression of confidence and boldness in calling God Abba, Father. It's the same as saying we pray to God as our Father without a shred of doubt, for we are confident that when we raise up our voices to our Heavenly Father, whoso loves us, He hears us. This is a cry of affection and love. It's a cry of delight in God as our Father. And so I ask you, could it be the, the reason why you pray so infrequently? And so irregularly is that God is yet to be your father. Yes? Is your prayerlessness indicative of your condition of not being a child of God? I'm asking. It's a strong challenge I'm asking you. Is your prayerlessness indicative? You know what that one means now. It's stating your position. You do not commune with God because you have no relationship with Him, right? Let me say three things and then I will call it a day. Number one. Praise God for the privileges and blessings he has bestowed upon us so graciously by making us his children. 
how privileged we are to be a member in good standing in the family of God is a privilege never to be assumed or taken for granted. This is why, brothers, I don't understand some of your conduct. You don't behave as if we are brothers and sisters in the same family of God. By the way you treat others. You don't weep with them when they are weeping. Paul will bring up this later in the book. You're not there with them when they're in trouble. Some of the brethren here have been bereaved. And more bereavement will be in the future. Do you take a chance to go and weep with those who are weeping? Is he, is he, is he not your brother in Jesus Christ? Is God not your common father? How can you be indifferent? If we've been so loved by God, how can we not serve one another? How can we not be involved in the lives of others? And we're not able to do this by our nature. It's because we were saved by God's grace. What man of love it is that we should be called children of God. This is what we are. So we need to behave accordingly as children of God. And then secondly, I want to plead with you. By the mercies of God, not to grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. Never grieve the Holy Spirit who works in our souls, in our spirits, so intimately. See, true religion is essentially an inward, free, self-moving principle of divine life. Not merely a system of thought or behavior, conduct, constrained by external considerations. It is the life of God within the soul, the human soul, enlivening and motivating, as Henry Skugel has said in his book, the soul, uh, the, the, the soul of God in the human soul, something like that, excuse me. This means that we live in good conscience before God and before man. We, we seek to please God who so loved us and gives us new life. But many of the times when we are bent on pleasing the flesh more than the spirit, this to our shame. Grieving the Holy Spirit every day. It, you know, I don't know whether you've spoken with a parent who lives with a grievous son. Or a spouse who lives with a grievous spouse. Vexing is a word. You vex. Can you imagine a believing spouse whose husband is an alcoholic? And every day he comes home drunk and throwing words, insults, 
we would say venomous words in the house. Making the environment toxic every day. We say he is a thorn in the flesh. And you are the wife of such a man. And every day he comes back home. You are hoping that somehow he spent the night wherever. Because of how painful it is to live with him. Now imagine you are the Holy Spirit in a soul of a man who is bent on vexing you. Because the Spirit dwells in us. But the point is, if you are like that, then you would not be a believer and the Spirit would be absent anyway. But the point is still made. That if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're constantly vexing him. Constantly vexing him. You will fight no peace until you deal with your sins. Thirdly and finally, rejoice in the security we have as sons of God. Think about the fact that God has firmly secured us in his hand. Believer, there's no one who can erase your name from the book of life. No one. When you truly love the Lord in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, then you will be more and more certainly assured of your being in a state of grace and you may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Which hope shall never disappoint? The assurance is based on the fact that we've been forgiven and been adopted into God's family. And we are God's children. We can call him Abba, Father, every day.